It was my great desire to easily read this book. I thought it was written by the Almighty Himself. I loved this book and prayed over it and labored until I could read it. I used to go to the church to hear the white preacher. When I heard him read his text, I would read mine when I got home. This is the way, my readers, I learned to read the Word of God when I was a slave. Thus did I labor eleven years under the impression that I was called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ever-blessed God. Then I learned to write. Here I had no teaching, but I obtained a book with the writing alphabet in it. I copied the letters until I could write. I had no slate, so I used to write on the ground. All by myself I learned the art of writing. Peter Randolph, 1855 Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. This episode is the third and final one in a series on enslaved Americans and their pursuit of literacy. As I talked about last time, since it was illegal and downright dangerous to do so, black Americans had to devise all sorts of strategies to, ed to educate themselves. I also discussed why white people were sometimes willing to help them. Today I'm focusing more on the history of the slave narrative and how we came to have these valuable accounts that tell us not only how enslaved people learned to read, but why. I've inserted a tone wherever the N-word was used. For Frederick Douglass, some of his motivation to learn to read came from Hugh Auld's fierce opposition to it. As I discussed in Episode 2, Frederick Douglass got his start with reading from Auld's wife, Sophia. When Mr. Auld learned of this, he put a stop to it. As Douglass writes in his first autobiography, published in 1845, Hugh Auld warned his wife that, If you give a an inch, he will take an L. A should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best in the world. Now, said he, if you teach that, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. Ald's reaction convinced the young Frederick Douglass that learning to read was exactly what he needed to do. He writes, Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose, at whatever cost of trouble, to learn to read. The very decided manner with which he spoke and strove to impress his wife with the evil consequences of giving me instruction, served to convince me that he was deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with the utmost confidence on the results which, he said, would flow from teaching me to read. What he most dreaded, that I most desired. What he most loved, that I most hated. 
that which to him was a great evil to be carefully shunned was to me a great good to be diligently sought and the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with a desire and determination to learn in learning to read i owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress i acknowledge the benefit of both to douglas and so many others reading meant freedom he writes that reading quote, gave tongue to interesting thoughts in my soul which had frequently flashed through my mind and died away for want of utterance end quote. this intellectual awakening was a double-edged sword however because it made him painfully conscious of his condition he also writes i would at times feel that learning to read had been a curse rather than a blessing it had given me a view of my wretched condition without the remedy it opened my eyes to the horrible pit but to no ladder upon which to get out in moments of agony i envied my fellow slaves for their stupidity i have often wished myself a beast i preferred the condition of the meanest reptile to my own anything no matter what to get rid of thinking it was this everlasting thinking of my condition that tormented me there was no getting rid of it it was pressed upon me by every object within sight or hearing animate or inanimate the silver trump of freedom had roused my soul to eternal wakefulness freedom now appeared to disappear no more forever it was heard in every sound and seen in everything it was ever present to torment me with a sense of my wretched condition i saw nothing without seeing it i heard nothing without hearing it and felt nothing without feeling it it looked from every star it smiled in every calm breathed in every wind and moved in every storm i often found myself regretting my own existence and wishing myself dead and but for the hope of being free i have no doubt that i should have killed myself or done something for which I should have been killed. While in this state of mind, I was eager to hear anyone speak of slavery. I was a ready listener. Every little while, I could hear something about the abolitionists. It was some time before I found out what the word meant. It was always used in such connections as to make it an interesting word to me. If a slave ran away and succeeded in getting clear, or if a slave killed his master, set fire to a barn or did anything very wrong in the mind of a slaveholder it was spoken of as the fruit of abolition c h hall also from maryland writes about the way reading opened his mind of his thoughts before escaping to canada he recalls quote, the more i read the more i fought against slavery finally i thought i would make an attempt to be free and have liberty or death not only did literacy open minds it was a literal ticket to freedom southern slave codes devoted sections to the written pass that enslaved persons had to carry in order to leave a plantation they were called they were also called tickets letters or certificates of leave the south carolina code of 1740 reads 
and for the better keeping slaves in due order and subjection, be it further enacted by the authority aforesaid, that no person whatsoever shall permit or suffer any slave under his or their care or management, and who lives or is employed in Charleston, or any other town in this province, to go out of the limits of the said town, or any such slave who lives in the country, to go out of the plantation to which the slave belongs, or in which plantation such slave is usually employed, without a letter superscribed and directed, or a ticket in the words following. Permit this slave to be absent from Charlestown, or any other town, if he lives in the country, from Mr. Blank, Plantation Blank, Parish, for blank days or hours, dated the blank day of blank, or to that purpose or effect, which ticket shall be signed by the master or other persons, having the care or charge of such slave, or by some other person, by his or their order, directions and consent. And every slave who shall be found out of Charleston, or any other town, if such slave is usually employed there, or out of the plantation to which such slave belongs, or in which such slave is usually employed, or if such slave lives in the country without such letter or ticket as aforesaid, or without a white person in his company, shall be punished with whipping on the bare back, not exceeding twenty lashes. And be it further enacted by the authority aforesaid, that if any person shall presume to give a ticket or license to any slave who is the property or under the care of another, without the consent or against the will of the owner or other person having charge of such slave, shall forfeit to the owner the sum of twenty pounds current money. As I talked about in episode two, Susan King Taylor had the benefit of multiple teachers before eventually becoming a teacher herself. This enabled her to write these much-needed passes for others. In her autobiography, she writes, I often wrote passes for my grandmother, for all colored persons, free or slaves, were compelled to have a pass, free colored people having a guardian in place of a master. These passes were good until 10 or 10.30 p.m. for one night or every night for one month. The pass read as follows. Savannah, Georgia, March 1, 1860. Pass the bearer from 9 to 10.30 p.m. Valentine Grest. Every person had to have this pass, for at 9 o'clock each night a bell was rung, and any colored persons found on the street after this hour were arrested by the watchman and put in the guardhouse until the next morning, when their owners would pay their fines and release them. I knew a number of persons who went out at any time at night and were never arrested, as the watchman knew them so well he never stopped them, and seldom asked to see their passes, only stopping them long enough sometimes to say howdy and then telling them to go along. James Fisher wrote himself passes until he was out of Tennessee. This was after Captain Davis threatened to cut off his right hand for learning how to read then trying to convince him that he was better off slave than free. Fisher eventually made his way to Canada. W.R. Midland from South Carolina offered a $50 reward in the February 12, 1863 Wilmington Journal for, quote, my boy Willis, end quote. Midland's notice said that, quote, I have good reason to believe 
that he has been passing on a permit written by himself, fictitiously signed, and may attempt to pass himself as a free Negro. End quote. A.T. Jones said that he had learned barely enough to, quote, put two syllables together grammatically, end quote, but it was enough to help him escape from his Kentucky plantation after he learned that his master had sold him, even though he had agreed to let A.T. buy himself. A.T.'s pass reads, quote, Please let the bearer pass and repass on good behavior to Cincinnati and return, end quote. His grammar was good enough to fool his marginally literate potential captors, and he made his way to Canada. Reading was a path to spiritual freedom, too. Religion, specifically Christianity, was a recurring theme among the narratives. Significant portions of some memoirs were devoted to religious experiences. Aunt Betty, who was the focus of the first episode in this series, devoted a chapter to her religious experiences and writes about her faith all through her memoir. And for many literate enslaved people, religion was behind their desire to read. A little later, I'll talk about the Federal Writers Project's collection of slave narratives. Of the interviewees who initiated their own literacy education, one-third reported doing so for religious reasons. In her autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, Harriet Jacobs writes about teaching Uncle Fred to read so that he could read the Bible. I knew an old black man whose piety and childlike trust in God were beautiful to witness. At 53 years old, he joined the Baptist Church. He had a most earnest desire to learn to read. He thought he should know how to serve God better if he could only read the Bible. He came to me and begged me to teach him. He said he could not pay me for he had no money, but he would bring me nice fruit when the season for it came. I asked if he didn't know it was contrary to the law, and that slaves were whipped and imprisoned for teaching each other to read. This brought tears into his eyes. Don't be troubled, Uncle Fred, said I. I have no thoughts of refusing to teach you. I only told you of the law, that you might know the danger, and be on your guard. He thought he could plan to come three times a week without it being suspected. I selected a quiet nook where no intruder was likely to penetrate, and there I taught him his ABC. Considering his age, his progress was astonishing. As soon as he could spell in two syllables, he wanted to spell out words in the Bible. The happy smile that illuminated his face put joy into my heart. After spelling out a few words, he paused and said, Honey, it appears when I can read this good book, I shall be nearer to God. White man has got all the sense. He can learn easy. It ain't easy for an old black man like me. I only want to read this book that I may know how to live. Then I have no fear about dying. I tried to encourage him by speaking of the rapid progress he had made. Have patience, child, he replied. I learned slow. I had no need of patience. His gratitude and the happiness I imparted were more than a recompense for all my trouble. At the end of six months, he had read through the New Testament and could find any text in it. One day, when he had recited unusually well, I said, Uncle Fred, how do you manage to get your lessons so well? Lord bless you, child, he replied. You never give me a lesson that I don't pray to God 
to help me understand what I spell and what I read. And he does help me, child. Bless his holy name. There are thousands who, good like good Uncle Fred, are thirsting for the water of life, but the law forbids it, and the churches withhold it. They send the Bible to the heathen abroad and neglect the heathen at home. I am glad that missionaries go out to the dark corners of the earth, but I ask them not to overlook the dark corners at home. Talk to American slaveholders as you talk to savages in Africa. Tell them it is sinful to sell your own children and atrocious to violate their daughters. Tell them that all men are brethren and that man has no right to shut out the light of knowledge from his brother. Tell them they are answerable to God for sealing up the fountain of life from souls that are thirsting for it. As I said last time, white people who taught black people to read often did so as part of religious instruction. Some saw it as their Christian duty to preach the gospel to enslaved people. And for some, their motivation was instilling obedience. But for enslaved Christians, the Bible represented liberation, both on earth and in eternity. They identified with the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, whom Moses led into the Promised Land. Charlotte Brooks had fond memories of hearing Bible stories from a friend at another plantation whom she knew as Aunt Jane. The next time I went to see Aunt Jane, we had another happy time. She could read right good in the Bible and hymn book, and she would read to me one or two hymns at a time. I remember she read to me about Daniel in the lion's den and about the king having the three Hebrew children cast in the fiery furnace. And when he looked in the flames of fire, he saw four men, and one looked like the Son of God. Oh, how Aunt Jane used to love to read about the Hebrew children. In episode two, we heard about how enslaved man James Curry started learning to read until the lessons were discovered and then forbidden. He continued studying in secret and read the White family's Bible on Sundays while they were at church. During these secret readings, there I learned that it was contrary to the revealed will of God that one man should hold another as a slave. I had always heard it talked among slaves that we ought not be held as slaves, that our forefathers and mothers were stolen from Africa, where they were free men and free women. But in the Bible I learned that, quote, God hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, end quote. Literacy provided access to the entire Bible, not just the passages that slaveholders quoted to teach submission. Frederick Douglass admits that after reading his own narrative, he feels it might give the impression that he's against all religion. He does, in fact, profess faith in Christ and prosecutes what he calls, quote, the Christianity of America, end quote, in biting terms. Douglas writes about the difference between the so-called slaveholding religion and the true Christianity of Christ. I find, since reading over the foregoing narrative, that I have, in several instances, spoken in such a tone and manner respecting religion as may possibly lead those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said 
respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of, quote, stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in, end quote. And there's more. Douglas writes that, quote, We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members, end quote. He condemns the hypocrisy of preaching purity while selling women into prostitution, and of defend- defending the sacredness of family while selling families apart. Quote, We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery, end quote. Douglas continues his scathing indictment by quoting the Bible itself, condemning slaveholders in the same terms that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees. Indeed, enslaved people's practice of Christianity differed in many ways from that of the enslavers. And as religion played a central role in African American life, those who could read, and therefore read the Bible, frequently became leaders of their communities. Bird Day of Glenville, Alabama, shares that. As I could read in the days of slavery, and as the people on the place wanted to know the sayings of God, as they called the Bible, they bought me a Bible and got me to read for them. We slaves were allowed night farms in those days. An acre or so of land was given to each person wanting to work at night. Well, in order that I might study the Bible, the other slaves on the place worked my patch for me. So I studied the book and read it to them. Enslaved preachers were not always literate, as Addie Vinson of Athens, Georgia, told her Federal Works Project interviewers. Quote, Old man Isaac Vandiver, a preacher that couldn't read a word in the Bible, would get up in that pulpit and talk from his heart. You know, there's heaps of folks that have that sort of religion. It's deep in their hearts, end quote. But literacy and religious leadership did go hand in hand for Peter Randolph. Of life on Carter H. Edlow's plantation in Prince George County, Virginia, he writes, With my mind's eye, I could see my Redeemer hanging upon the cross for me. I wanted all the other slaves to see him thus and feel as happy as I did. I used to talk to others and tell them of the friend they would have in Jesus and show them by my experience how I was brought to Christ and felt his love within my heart. And love it was in God adapting himself to my capacity. After receiving this revelation from the Lord, 
I became impressed that I was called of God to preach to the other slaves. I labored under this impression for seven years, but then I could not read the Bible, and I thought I could never preach unless I learned to read the Bible, but I had no one to teach me how to read. A friend showed me the letters and how to spell words of three letters. Then I continued until I got so as to read the Bible, the great book of God, the source of all knowledge. Edlo died in 1844, and in his will he emancipated the 80 enslaved people on his plantation and bequeathed them each $50. Edlo's family contested the will for three years, but eventually Randolph and 65 others were freed and each given $15. The 22-year-old Randolph led the newly freed people to Boston, where they were welcomed by William Lloyd Garrison and other abolitionists. Randolph was involved with the Anti-Slavery Society, and in 1855 he published his autobiography, Sketches of Slave Life, or Illustrations of the Peculiar Institution. He eventually became a licensed Baptist preacher and also served as a missionary in Canada to fugitive slaves. During the Civil War, he was a chaplain for a black regiment, and after the war, he became the first African-American pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. Like Frederick Douglass does in his narrative, Randolph makes a distinction between the true gospel and what was often preached to enslaved people. He also alludes to the fact that enslaved people were not always encouraged or even allowed to attend religious services. He writes that on Sundays, after doing their morning work, their breakfast over, such as it is, that portion of them belonging to the church ask of the overseer permission to attend the meeting. If he is in the mood to grant their request, he writes them a pass as follows, quote, permit the bearer to pass and repass to blank this evening unmolested, end quote. Should a pass not be granted, the slave lies down and sleeps for the day, the only way to drown his sorrow and disappointment. In Bethany Vaney's narrative, which I read back in February, she writes of begging her enslaver to allow her to attend meetings. Fred Francis Frederick of Fauquier County, Virginia, writes that my master was in the habit of sending for all slave children from the cabins. Then, standing on the veranda, he would say, Look, you see those horses? Yes, sir, all replied together. Do you see the cows? Yes, sir. Do you see the sheep? Yes, sir. Do you see the mules? Yes, sir. Look, you You have no souls. You are just like those cattle. When you die, there is an end of you. There is nothing more for you to think about than living. White people only have souls. We also see from Randolph's quote that not all enslaved people were professing Christians. But it's clear from many narratives that neither distorting nor discouraging Christianity was effective in keeping countless enslaved people from embracing it for themselves. Not only did the ability to read and write help enslaved individuals achieve varying levels of freedom for themselves and their loved ones, the ability to share first-hand stories of slavery helped the cause of freedom for all slaves. These narratives exposed Northern readers 
to the violence and cruelty of slavery and helped combat the myth that black people happily served benevolent masters. Since before the nation's founding, free and enslaved blacks wrote eloquently to advocate for the race. In doing so, they also refuted racist ideas about black people's intelligence. In 1767, Phyllis Wheatley's first poem was published in the Newport, Rhode Island, Mercury. It was a harrowing tale of a ship's stormy voyage from Nantucket to Boston. She heard the story while the men who survived the trip dined at the Wheatley home. The poem that made Phyllis Wheatley famous was an elegy to the Anglican cleric and evangelist George Whitfield. Her book of verse, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published in 1773 when she was 18, making her the first English-speaking person of African descent to publish a book. After questioning the poet, several prominent Bostonians, including the governor of Massachusetts and John Hancock, agreed to endorse the book and attest that a black woman had indeed written it. The preface reads, that the poems specified in the following pages were, as we verily believe, written by Phyllis, a young Negro girl, who was but a few years since brought an uncultivated barbarian from Africa, and has never since been, and now is, under the disadvantage of serving as a slave in a family in this town. Even with the endorsement, Wheatley was unable to get subscribers, or financial supporters for the publication of her book. It was eventually published with the patronage of Selina Hastings, the Countess of Huntingdon in England. In London, she was welcomed by several English dignitaries, as well as Ben Franklin, who was there at the time. Wheatley was emancipated shortly after the publication of the book. One poem in it was called On Being Brought from Africa to America. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior, too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train. In October 1775, Phyllis Wheatley sent a copy of her poetry to the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The poem was called His Excellency, General Washington, and it contains allusions to Columbia, the female personification of the Americas. The last stanza reads, Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. By every action let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine, with gold unfading, Washington, be thine. Washington sent a response in February of 1776, and after apologizing for the delayed response due to, quote, a variety of important occurrences, end quote, he writes, I thank you most sincerely for your polite notice of me in the elegant lines you enclosed, and however undeserving I may be of such encomium and panegyric, the style and manner exhibit a striking proof of your great poetical talents. 
in honor of which, and as a tribute justly due to you, I would have published the poem, had I not been apprehensive that, while I only meant to give the world this new instance of your genius, I might have incurred the imputation of vanity. This, and nothing else, determined me not to give it place in the public prints. If you should ever come to Cambridge, or near headquarters, I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses, and to whom nature has been so liberal and beneficent in her dispensations. I am, with great respect, your obedient humble servant, G. Washington. Washington shared the poem with Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Reed, who did have it published. Wheatley's 1778 eulogy to David Worcester included a critique of a nation that hoped for God's blessing while keeping Africans enslaved. But how presumptuous shall we hope to find divine acceptance with the almighty mind, while yet, O deed, ungenerous they disgrace and hold in bondage Afric's blameless race. Let virtue reign and then accord our prayers be victory ours, and generous freedom theirs. Another African-American who exchanged letters with a founding father was Benjamin Banneker. He was born in 1734 in Baltimore County to a free mulatto woman and formerly enslaved African man. He learned to read from his grandmother, who had been an indentured service servant from England, and spent some time in a one-room Quaker school that met near his parents' tobacco farm. Banneker never experienced slavery himself, but he advocated for his enslaved brethren in a 1791 letter to Thomas Jefferson. He sent the letter with the manuscript of his first almanac, which was based on his own calculations. He completed the almanac, while also helping Major Andrew Ellicott survey the new federal city. The letter to then-Secretary of State Jefferson reads, in part, August 19, 1791. Sir, I have long been convinced that if your love for yourselves and for those inestimable laws which preserve to you the rights of human nature was founded on sincerity, you could not but be solicitous that every individual of whatsoever rank or distinction might with you equally enjoy the blessings thereof. Neither could you rest satisfied short of the most active diffusion of your exertions, in order to their promotion from any state of degradation, to which the unjustifiable cruelty and barbarism of men may have reduced them. Sir, I freely and cheerfully acknowledge that I am of the African race, and in that color which is natural to them of the deepest dye, and it is under a sense of the most profound gratitude to the supreme ruler of the universe, that I now confess to you that I am not under the state of tyrannical thraldom and inhuman captivity to which too many of my brethren are doomed, but that I have abundantly tasted of the fruition of those blessings which proceed from that free and unequaled liberty with which you are favored, and which I hope you will willingly allow you have received from the immediate hand of that being from whom proceedeth every good and perfect gift. Sir, suffer me to recall to your mind that time in which the arms and tyranny of the British crown were exerted with every powerful effort in order to reduce you to a state of servitude, 
Look back, I entreat you, on the variety of dangers to which you are exposed. Reflect on that time in which every human aid appeared unavailable, and in which even hope and fortitude wore the aspect of inability to the conflict. And you cannot but be led to a serious and grateful sense of your miraculous and providential preservation. You cannot but acknowledge that the present freedom and tranquility which you enjoy, you have mercifully received, and that it is the peculiar blessing of heaven. This, sir, was a time in which you clearly saw into the injustice of a state of slavery, and in which you had just apprehensions of the horrors of its condition. It was now, sir, that your abhorrence thereof was so excited, that you publicly held forth this true and invaluable doctrine, which is worthy to be recorded and remembered in all succeeding ages. Behold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here, sir, was a time in which your tender feelings for yourselves had engaged you thus to declare, you were then impressed with proper ideas of the great valuation of liberty and the free possession of those blessings to which you were entitled by nature. How pitiable it is to reflect that although you were so fully convinced of the benevolence of the Father of mankind and of his equal and impartial distribution of those rights and privileges which he had conferred upon them, that you should at the same time counteract his mercies in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression, that you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act, which you professedly detested in others, with respect to yourselves. That's only about a third of the letter. Banneker goes on to say he doesn't have to tell Jefferson about the conditions of enslaved people or to propose to him a remedy but challenges Jefferson to, quote, eradicate that train of absurd and false ideas and opinions which so generally prevails with respect to us, end quote. Then, after explaining a little about how he came to write the almanac, Banneker signs the letter, quote, And now, sir, I shall conclude and subscribe myself with the most profound respect, your obedient, humble servant. Jefferson replies, <laughs> Philadelphia, August 30, 1791. I thank you sincerely for your letter of the 19th, instant and for the almanac it, it contained. Nobody wishes more than I do to see such proofs as you exhibit, that nature has given to our black brethren talents equal to those of the other colors of men, and that the appearance of a want of them is owing merely to the degraded condition of their existence both in Africa and America. I can add with truth that nobody wishes more ardently to see a good system commenced for raising the condition both of their body and mind to what it ought to be, as fast as the imbecility of their present existence and other circumstances which cannot be neglected will admit. I have taken the liberty of sending your almanac to Monsieur de Condorcet, Secretary of the Academy of Sciences at Paris, and member of the Philanthropic Society, because I considered it as a document to which your whole color had a right 
for their justification against the doubts which have been entertained for them. I am with great esteem, sir, your most obedient humble servant, T.H. Jefferson. In the ensuing decades, many more Americans of African descent lifted their voices and their pens in the fight for liberty. Narratives of formerly enslaved people appeared in abolitionist periodicals like William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. They were also part of court records, church documents, and official state and federal reports. Before the Civil War, 6,000 American slave narratives were printed in some form, 100 as separate books. Frederick Douglass published his first autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, in 1845. He had been an orator for the Anti-Slavery Society and spoke so eloquently that people doubted that he had actually been enslaved. Douglas wrote his narrative in part to, to prove that he had been held in bondage. The publication also disseminated Douglas's powerful anti-slavery arguments to more people than he could reach with his speeches. In the first four months after the first printing, 5,000 copies were sold. Douglas's was easily the best known from the period, but there were other commercially successful narratives. William Wells Brown published his in 1847. It sold over 8,000 copies in less than 18 months, and as a slave narrative, was surpassed in sales only by Douglas's. One story that Brown shares is about tricking another man, a free black man, into getting a whipping that was meant for him. Brown's enslaver had wanted him whipped for some offense and sent Brown to the jail with a dollar and a note asking them to do it. While walking around and trying to figure out how to get out of the punishment, Brown met this unnamed man and, quote, told him I had a note to go to the jail and get a trunk to carry to one of the steamboats, but I was so busily engaged that I could not get it, although I had a dollar to pay for it, end quote. The man took the note, which he could not read, to the jailer, who then whipped him as the note instructed, and took the dollar. The jailer sent the man back out with another note, saying that he had given him twenty lashes. When the victim came out of the jail, he naturally complained to Brown about the trick, but Brown gave him his last fifty cents for his trouble. Of the incident, Brown writes, This incident shows how it is that slavery makes its victims lying and mean, for which vices it afterwards reproaches them and uses them as arguments to prove that they deserve no better fate. Had I entertained the same views of right and wrong which I now do, I am sure that I should never have practiced the deception upon that poor fellow which I did. I know of no act committed by me while in slavery, which I have regretted more than that. And I heartily desire that it may be at some time or other in my power to make him amends for his vicarious sufferings in my behalf. After describing his personal experience in slavery, and other enslaved people's experiences that he knew of or, or witnessed, he writes that he will, quote, let the slaveholders speak for themselves, end quote. What follows are news clippings and runaway notices that describe enslaved people having iron collars clamped onto their legs, having letters branded onto their faces, and being burned alive. Then there are pages and pages of slave codes from throughout the South, 
prohibiting, for example, marriage, ownership of property, and preaching. Finally, he implores, Reader, you uphold these laws while you do nothing for their repeal. You can do much. You can take and read the anti-slavery journals. They will give you an impartial history of the cause and arguments with which to convert its enemies. You can countenance and aid those who are laboring for its promotion. You can petition against slavery. You can refuse to vote for slaveholders or pro-slavery men, constitutions and compacts, can abstain from products of slave labor, and can use your social influence to spread right principles and awaken a right feeling. Be as earnest for freedom as its foes are for slavery, and you can diffuse an anti-slavery sentiment through your whole neighborhood and merit, quote, the blessing of them that are ready to perish, end quote. Brown penned several African-American firsts, including the first novel, the first play, and the first travel book published by an African-American. Brown also lent his voice to the women's suffrage, prison reform, and temperance movements. In 1861, Harriet Jacobs became the first African-American woman to write her own slave narrative. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl speaks openly about a topic that was well known, if not discussed, the sexual exploitation of enslaved women. We've already heard Aunt Betty bemoan the fate of an enslaved woman when her daughter is born, saying that her, quote, almost certain doom is to minister to the unbridled lust of the slave owner, end quote. Jacobs goes into much more detail on the subject. But I now entered on my 15th year, a sad epoch in the life of a slave girl. My master began to whisper foul words in my ear. Young as I was, I could not remain ignorant of their import. I tried to treat them with indifference or contempt. My master's age, my extreme youth, and the fear that his conduct would be reported to my grandmother made him bear this treatment for many months. He was a crafty man and resorted to many means to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he had stormy, terrific ways that made his victims tremble. Sometimes he assumed a gentleness that he thought must surely subdue. Of the two, I preferred his stormy moods, although they left me trembling. He tried his utmost to corrupt the pure principles my grandmother had instilled. He peopled my young mind with unclean images, such as only a vile monster could think of. I turned from him with disgust and hatred, but he was my master. I was compelled to live under the same roof with him, where I saw a man forty years my senior, daily violating the most sacred commandments of nature. He told me I was his property, that I must be subject to his will in all things. My soul revolted against the mean tyranny, but where could I turn for protection? No matter whether the slave girl be as black as ebony or as fair as her mistress, in either case, there is no shadow of law to protect her from insult, from violence, or even from death. All these are inflicted by fiends who bear the shape of men. The mistress, who ought to protect the helpless victim, has no other feeling towards her but of jealousy and rage. The degradation, the wrongs, the vices that grow out of slavery 
are more than I can describe. They are greater than you would willingly believe. Surely, if you credited one half of the truths that are told you concerning the helpless millions suffering in this cruel bondage, you at the North would not help to tighten the yoke. You surely would refuse to do for the Master, on your own soil, the mean and cruel work which trained bloodhounds and the lowest class of whites do for him at the South. Everywhere the years bring to all enough of sin and sorrow, but in slavery the very dawn of life is darkened by these shadows. Even the little child, who is accustomed to wait on her mistress and her children, will learn, before she is twelve years old, why it is that her mistress hates such and such a one among the slaves. Perhaps the child's own mother is among those hated ones. She listens to violent outbreaks of jealous passion and cannot help understanding what is the cause. She will become prematurely knowing in evil things. Soon she will learn to tremble when she hears her master's footfall. She will be compelled to realize that she is no longer a child. If God has bestowed beauty upon her, it will prove her greatest curse. That which commands admiration in the white woman only hastens the degradation of the female slave. I know that some are too much brutalized by slavery to feel the humiliation of their position, but many slaves feel it most acutely and shrink from the memory of it. I cannot tell how much I suffered in the presence of these wrongs, nor how I am still pained by the retrospect. My master met me at every turn, reminding me that I belonged to him and swearing by heaven and earth that he would compel me to submit to him. If I went out for a breath of fresh air, after a day of unweary toil, his footsteps dogged me. If I knelt by my mother's grave, his dark shadow fell on me even there. The light heart which nature had given me became heavy with sad forebodings. The other slaves in my master's house noticed the change. Many of them pitied me, but none dared ask the cause. They had no need to inquire. They knew too well the guilty practices under that roof, and were aware that to speak of them was an offense that never went unpunished. Like many narratives, Jacob's had a preface. Affidavits, letters of reference, news clippings, and other documents also preface narratives to help assure readers of their validity. Abolitionist and women's rights activist Lydia Mariah Child who incidentally wrote the poem Over the River and Through the Woods, says the following in the preface of Jacob's narrative. I am well aware that many will accuse me of indecorum for presenting these pages to the public, for the experiences of this intelligent and much-injured woman belong to a class which some call delicate subjects and others indelicate. This peculiar phase of slavery has generally been kept veiled but the public ought to be made acquainted with its monstrous features, and I willingly take the responsibility of presenting them with the veil withdrawn. I do this for the sake of my sisters in bondage, who are suffering wrongs so foul that our ears are too delicate to listen to them. I do it with the hope of arousing conscientious and reflecting women at the North to a sense of their duty in the exertion of moral influence on the question of slavery, on all possible occasions. I do it with the hope that every man who reads this narrative will swear solemnly before God that, so far as he has power to prevent it, 
no fugitive from slavery shall ever be sent back to suffer in that loathsome den of corruption and cruelty. Supporters of slavery were unwilling to be convinced by such notices and dismissed many narratives as propaganda and lies. One of the men mentioned in Frederick Douglass's autobiography tried to refute it in a letter to the Liberator. And although I am aware that no sensible, unprejudiced person will credit such a ridiculous publication, which bears the glaring impress of falsehood on every page, yet I deem it expedient that I should give the public some information respecting the validity of this narrative, because I was for many years a citizen of the section of country where the scenes of the above-mentioned narrative are laid, and am intimately acquainted with most of the gentlemen whose characters are so shamefully traduced, and I am also aware that the narrative was not written by the professed author, but from statements of this runaway slave, some evil-designed person or persons have composed this catalogue of lies to excite the indignation of the public opinion against the slaveholders of the South, and have even attempted to plunge their venomous fangs in the vitals of the Church. I shall therefore briefly notice some of the most glaring falsehoods contained in the aforesaid narrative, and give a true representation of the character of those gentlemen who have been censured in, in such an uncharitable manner as murderers, hypocrites, and everything else that is vile. I indulge no animosity against the fabricators and circulators of the narrative, neither do I know them, but I positively declare the whole to be a bucket of falsehoods from beginning to end. First, the identity of the author. About eight years ago, I knew this recreant slave by the name of Frederick Bailey instead of Douglas. He then lived with Mr. Edward Covey and was an unlearned and rather an ordinary Negro, and am confident he was not capable of writing the narrative alluded to. For none but an educated man, and one who had some knowledge of the rules of grammar, could write so correctly. Although, to make the imposition at all creditable, the composer has labored to write it in as plain a style as possible. Consequently, the detection of this first falsehood proves the whole production to be notoriously untrue. Thompson notwithstanding, accounts of slavery were crucial in setting the record straight about the true nature of the peculiar institution. Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, opened northern eyes to the brutality of American slavery. Stowe's book was actually based on a memoir entitled The Life of Josiah Henson, Formerly a Slave, Now an Inhabitant of Canada, as narrated by himself. Henson dictated his life story to a former Boston mayor and Massachusetts state legislator, Samuel Atkins Elliott. Henson described his meeting with Stowe in a later edition of his memoir. I was in the vicinity of Andover, Massachusetts, in the year 1849, where Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe resided. She sent for me and my traveling companion, Mr. George Clark, a white gentleman, who had a fine voice for singing and usually sang at my meetings to add to their interest. We went to Mrs. Stowe's house, and she was deeply interested in the story of my life and misfortunes and had me narrow, narrate its details to her. 
She said she was glad it had been published and hoped it would be of great service and would open the eyes of the people to the enormity of the crime of holding men in bondage. She manifested so much interest in me that I told her about the peculiarities of many slaveholders and the slaves in the region where I had lived for forty-two years. My experiences had been more varied than those of the majority of slaves, for I was not only my master's overseer, but a market man for twenty-five years in the market at Washington, going there to sell the produce for, from my master's plantation. After Mrs. Stowe's remarkable book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was published and circulated in all parts of America, read openly at the North and stealthily at the South, many thought that her statements were exaggerations. She then published the key to her book to prove that it was impossible to exaggerate the enormities of slavery, and she therein gave many parallel cases and referred to my published life story as an exemplification of the truth of the character of her Uncle Tom. From that time to the present, I have been called Uncle Tom, and I feel proud of the title. If my humble words in any way inspired that gifted lady to write such a plaintive story that the whole community has been touched with pity for the sufferings of the poor slave, I have not lived in vain, for I believe that her book was the beginning of the glorious end. It was a wedge that finally rent asunder that gigantic fabric with a fearful crash. Something interesting I learned is that the name Uncle Tom became an epithet not because of the book, but because of so-called Tom shows or minstrel shows that inverted the novel's plot. In these performances, Tom was an old hunchback who spoke in broken English and gladly sold out his fellow enslaved people to please the master. This caricature would be played by white men in blackface. Since more people saw the shows than read the books, the negative meaning of Uncle Tom persisted. After emancipation and abolition, the newly freed Americans continued to defy racist ideas about their willingness and ability to learn. They eagerly attended freedmen's schools and started their own schools. Massachusetts sisters Lucy and Sarah Chase taught in freedmen's schools and described their students, quote, greed for letters, end quote. Reverend Joseph Warren, General Superintendent of Colored Schools, echoed this sentiment in, an in a report he sent to Colonel John Eaton, Jr., General Superintendent of Refugees and Freedmen. April 10, 1865. One of the most gratifying facts developed by the recent change in their condition is that they very generally desire instruction, and many seize every opportunity in intervals of labor to obtain it. I saw a small detachment of infantry soldiers who had previously been unable to secure any attention from a teacher, placed within reach of a mission family. The soldiers had not been there an hour when those not on sentry duty had, of their own motion, procured spelling books and begged one of the ladies to aid them occasionally. They soon were busily at work on the alphabet. Susie King Taylor, whom I've already mentioned, writes about her experiences with the Union Army making her the only African-American woman to write an autobiography of Civil War experiences. It's entitled Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops, late 1st South Carolina Volunteers. She writes about seeing federal troops for the first time at the end of Chapter 2.
On April 1, 1862, about the time the Union soldiers were firing on Fort Pulaski, I was sent out into the country to my mother. I remember what a roar and din the guns made. They jarred the earth for miles. The fort was at last taken by them. Two days after the taking of Fort Pulaski, my uncle took his family of seven and myself to St. Catherine Island. We landed under the protection of the Union fleet and remained there two weeks, when about thirty of us were taken aboard the gunboat to be transferred to St. Simon's Island, and at last, to my unbounded joy, I saw the Yankee. After we were all settled aboard and started on our journey, Captain Whitmore, commanding the boat, asked me where I was from. I told him Savannah, Georgia. He asked if I could read. I said, yes. Can you write, he asked next. Yes, I can do that also, I replied. And as if he had some doubts of my answers, he handed me a book and a pencil and told me to write my name and where I was from. I did this when he wanted to know if I could sew. On hearing I could, he asked me to hem some napkins for him. He was surprised at my accomplishments, for they were such in those days, for he had, for he said he did not know there were any Negroes in the South able to read or write. He said, quote, You seem to be so different from the other colored people who come from the same place you did, end quote. No, I replied. The only difference is they were reared in the country and I in the city, as was a man from Darien, Georgia, named Edward King. This seemed to satisfy him, and we had no further conversation that day on the subject. Taylor served as a, as a laundress for the 1st South Carolina Volunteers, the U.S. Army's 1st Black Regiment. She served in other ways, some of which she writes about in Chapter 4 of her memoir. I taught a great many comrades in Company E to read and write when they were off duty. Nearly all were anxious to learn. My husband taught some also when it was convenient for him. I was very happy to know my efforts were successful in camp, and also grateful for the appreciation of my services. I gave my services willingly for four years and three months without receiving a dollar. I was glad, however, to be allowed to go with the regiment to care for the sick and afflicted comrades. In the decades following the war, formerly enslaved people continued to publish their life stories. The biggest seller from this period was Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, published in 1901. I talked about him and his Tuskegee Institute in the series on the Great Migration. About learning to read, he writes, From the time that I can remember having any thoughts about anything, I recall that I had an intense longing to learn to read. I determined, when quite a small child, that, if I accomplished nothing else in life, I would in some way get enough education to enable me to read common books and newspapers. Soon after we got settled in some manner in our new cabin in West Virginia, I induced my mother to get a hold of a book for me. How or where she got it, I do not know. But in some way she procured an old copy of Webster's Blueback Speller, which contained the alphabet, followed by such meaning meaningless words as a, B, B, A, C, A, D, A. I began at once to devour this book, and I think it was the first one I ever had in my hands. I had learned from somebody that the way to begin to read 
was to learn the alphabet. So I tried in all ways I could think of to learn it. All, of course, without a teacher, for I could find no one to teach me. At that time, there was not a single member of my race anywhere near us who could read, and I was too timid to approach any of the white people. In some way, within a few weeks, I mastered the greater portion of the alphabet. In all my efforts to learn to read, my mother shared full my ambition, and sympathized with me, and aided me in every way she could. Though she was totally ignorant, so far as mere book knowledge was concerned, she had high ambitions for her children, and a large fund of good, hard, common sense which seemed to enable her to meet and master every situation. If I have done anything in life worth attention, I feel sure that I inherited the disposition from my mother. Over time, slavery receded from the national conversation. But in 1918, historian Ulrich Bono Phillips published the book American Negro Slavery, the first systematic analysis of slavery in the United States. It was the most comprehensive and detailed book on the subject up until that time. Phillips wrote Life and Labor in the Old South in 1929. His work was widely respected, and his writings influenced later books on slavery. In his 1918 book, he credits slavery with civilizing and training a backwards race of people. On the whole, the plantations were the best school yet invented for the mass training of that sort of inert and backward people, which the bulk of the American Negroes represented. The lack of any regular provision for the discharge of pupils upon the completion of their training was, of course, a cardinal shortcoming which the laws of slavery imposed. But even in view of this, the slave plantation regime, after having wrought the initial and irreparable misfortune of causing the Negroes to be imported, did at least as much as any system possible in the period could have done toward adapting the bulk of them to life in a civilized community. Though considered an authority on slavery, Phillips did not give much weight to slave narratives, as I mentioned in the Aunt Betty episode. Motivated in part by a desire to refute Phillips' plantation myth, in the late 1920s, researchers at different institutions independently began collecting narratives of the formerly enslaved. At this time, there was also a renewed interest in African-American history and culture. Out of the Harlem Renaissance, which started in the 1910s, came literature, music, theater, and fine art that had influence beyond New York City. Finally, Americans who were teenagers at the end of the Civil War were now in their 70s and 80s. The last generation that remembered slavery was passing away. Anthropologists and sociologists at three historically black institutions started in interviewing formerly enslaved people. Fisk University in Nashville, Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Prairie View State College in Prairie View, Texas. Several interviews from the Fisk study were quoted in Episode 2. During the Depression, the Works Projects Administration hired historians, teachers, and other white-collar workers to write a series of books highlighting the scenery, history, and culture of America's different regions. During the first year of the program, called the Federal Writers Project, interviews of formerly enslaved Americans were conducted sporadically without coordination throughout southern states. 
the interviewer was often the lone black employee in a state's project. In 1937, the national headquarters officially inaugurated the, Sna the Slave Narrative Collection. It contains over 2,000 interviews of formerly enslaved Americans. The interviewers were predominantly white, which some critics supposed may have made the interviewees less candid than they would have been with black interviewers. But it is a valuable collection nevertheless. This body of writings was actually more diverse than the antebellum narratives. Frequently, those authors had escaped slavery and were more likely to be from states in the Upper South, like Virginia and Kentucky. The Federal Writers Project Slave Collection includes accounts from people who remained enslaved until emancipation and covered 17 states. The collection also includes about 500 photographs, which are preserved at the Library of Congress. But I will close today's episode and this series with words from the first book form narrative by an enslaved American. It was published by William Grimes in 1825. He writes that in 1814, at the age of 30, while enslaved in Virginia, he got a job loading a ship from Boston. The, quote, Yankee sailors helped him escape to New York. On two separate occasions, Grimes crossed paths with former enslavers, but successfully evaded them. He eventually achieved some financial success as a barber and purchased a home. But the final time that he was threatened with capture, Grimes sold his property so that he could purchase his freedom. He closes his narrative. I hope some will buy my books from charity, but I am no beggar. I am now entirely destitute of property. Where and how I shall live, I don't know. Where and how I shall die, I don't know. But I hope I may be prepared. If it were not for the stripes on my back, which were made while I was a slave, I would, in my will, leave my skin a legacy to the government, desiring that it might be taken off and made into parchment, and then bind the Constitution of glorious, happy, and free America. Let the skin of an American slave bind the charter of American liberty. Many of the narratives quoted today are part of UNC's North American Slave Narratives Collection. Interviews from the Federal Writers Project are available on gutenberg.org. Links to these and other resources are in the show notes at americanepistles.com. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Check the Pinterest page to see the faces behind some of the voices we heard in this series. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening.